0: Welcome to SWIFT Unscripted. SWIFT podcasts give you the listener the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Here we are at SWIFT headquarters at the University of Kansas recording a live podcast on the topic of the history and future of inclusive school reform. Our guest today is Dr. Wayne Saylor. Dr. Saylor is the director of the SWIFT Center and a professor at the University of Kansas. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Ah, pleasure.
0: (laughs) So to begin with, we just want to know if you can tell us a little bit about your experiences working in the field of inclusive education and really how you see the field has evolved over time.
1: Sure. Well, we come at this issue of inclusion a little bit differently than most people do um, here within the SWIFT Center and um, I think partly that's my fault um, because I'm not an educator. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, who, through a, a bunch of unforeseen circumstances back in the 70s, uh, found my way into special education rather than my chosen uh, clinical psych uh, profession. The, uh, the issue of inclusion um, is, in my view, uh, a product of a fading paradigm if you will um, of within the social sciences in, in general and uh, and that fading paradigm is probably largely uh, the fault of, of my own uh, discipline of psychology uh, to understand that you, you have to um, Think about the distinction between the scientific disciplines of production of knowledge uh, on the one hand versus the social professions on the other hand, which are the means of delivery of scientific knowledge to actual practice in the service of human beings. Um, the, The profession of interest to us is. Um, education. Other professions that are not of interest for this discussion, for example, might be social welfare, which is the profession that's primarily informed by the discipline of sociology. Um, medicine, which is a profession that's informed by the discipline of biology, and so on and so forth. If it ends in ology, it's a scientific uh, knowledge development system um, generally described as science. Um, professions have have their own variety of names. the The uh, profession of education can be, if you look at it historically and trace back its roots, uh, into the particularly the period of uh, John Dewey. Uh, where it had its real renaissance in America. Um, that's turn of the last century. And, um, and psychology, uh, as well as uh, medicine, um, biology, um, sociology, and anthropology were the, the primary factors that were being at the time channeled through the University of Chicago uh, into the thinking of the Dewey School and uh, eventually into the new progressives in education and so on. Um, the The dominant paradigm of psychology is logical positivism, uh, which is now described uh, as post-positivism, and we don't have time here to get into <laughs> all of that. <laughs> but uh, but what, what post-positivism... has has offered uh, to education and to special education has been this idea uh, that we can stand apart from our world and interpret it and manipulate it through scientific investigation and make general statements about how to apply professional practice uh, to solve the problems that Human beings present in this case the attainment of knowledge through learning. the um, The problem with that is that it has um, failed in the case of special education to deliver on its premise and um, and its promise. Um, The if you look at the uh, percentage of students who graduate uh, with degrees who are in special education it's its phenomenally low. Uh, if you look at other indices of academic achievement uh, particularly as you get into uh, working with students who have more intensive support needs um, you find uh, things if anything are getting worse they're not getting better and uh, and so we have to to try to understand, should we keep pursuing uh, the current um, framework that we operate under this post-positivist paradigm? Should we, in other words, keep doing special education the way we're doing it, or should we even do it at all? And and that brings us to the issue of of inclusion. Uh, the the uh, idea of special education, if we follow the dictates of the dominant uh, discipline that informs education, psychology, and, and its dominant paradigm of postpositivism, positivism um, then we believe in the, the medical construct of disability. Right? So... Um, so if, who's to be served by special education? It has to be students that, that have so-called disabilities. And these so-called disabilities uh, have been um, formulated to um, make up a, a number of different categories with names historically like mental retardation mm-hmm. and, uh, and autism and deaf-blindness, and so on and so forth. Um, if you look at what's common across these different categories and descriptors, what jumps out at you is they're all properties of the individual. Right. They are um, quasi-disease states, mm-hmm. if, you, if you will, uh, thinking in, in the terms of medical logic. So what's happened to us is, is that post-positivist psychology and biology, mediated through the profession of medicine, also post-positivist, have teamed up together and uh, given us a frame on the concept of students who learn differently and at a different pace than, than the majority of students who enter the schools. Um, that uh, that you know we should consider those students as special and uh, and different, mm-hmm. um, and so special education was created to be a branch of education that would provide for the the educational needs of these students. Uh, this term special appears to be a, a euphemistic uh, um, term that evolved um, out of feelings of sympathy for the children that were afflicted with this this thing called disability. Uh, so the the issue of inclusion now becomes under this dominant paradigm of what um, some would call a wicked problem. Mm-hmm. Um, a wicked problem is a problem that, that um, the solution of which is in the formulation of the problem.
0: Right.
1: And the problem is you can't get uh, agreement um, across different factions of, of people within the sciences and the professions around just what the problem is. And uh, so it, it doesn't lend itself to a quick, simple solution. Uh, science will generate um, studies and, and knowledge and data in support of various contrasting definitions and, and opinions about uh, inclusion. And that's going on uh, even today. Um, so the, the question that I'm interested in is, and I think the Swift Center is kind of embodying is, is this, should we keep beating this dead horse? You know, should we, uh, should we keep, keep slogging along this, this path of, uh, pretending that the problems of the children we're concerned with are lodged within them as individuals? Um, and, uh, or should we do something really audacious? And that is, should we reframe the whole problem? Uh, I'm a uh, an advocate of of uh, uh, an urban planning sociologist named Terry Deal, uh, who was at Vanderbilt for a long time and then went to USC, and now is in retirement. and, uh, and Terry Deal, uh, together with some of his colleagues, uh, put out a uh, some books. Um, that uh, deal with this concept of reframing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a frame, you know, in this context is, is how do we understand uh, a problem? You know, what is what terms do we use to, to describe the problem and how do we think about it? And then reaching deeper what paradigms from knowledge generation and so forth do we draw from in order to understand the problem? And um and if the the, the dominant frame of a, of a problem is not leading to its solution in some reasonable period of time, Deal would argue perhaps it's time to uh, reframe the problem and uh, maybe reach back and look at, uh, at different epistemology, um, different ways of describing and understanding the problem. And so we in the Swift Center have... Kind of come up with this uh, idea that um, if we begin to reframe the problem of the education of students with different needs uh, for support and services to engage the teaching-learning process in ways that will lead to measurable positive outcomes. You know, graduation, higher quality of life, uh, academic achievement, uh, getting control over. uh, social uh, and behavioral uh, prob- you know, problems that, that get in the way of their learning and their, their functioning in society. Um, so uh, the, the inst- let's say for a moment that, uh, that we set aside positivistic psychology and uh, take another look at anthropology and sociology. Uh, What what do those disciplines bring um, to the table, and um, and how do they inform the profession of education? Its paradigm. Uh, It's been uh, very difficult to um, to get practitioners, both professionals and scientists, to uh, to embrace. Um, the contributions from these other disciplines. And uh, we've seen this in, in the history of, of uh, educational research in the struggle that goes on between qualitative researchers and quantitative researchers. Um, quantitative researchers are, of course, uh, following the prescriptions uh, for the advancement of science by positivism. Um, whereas uh, sociologists and cultural anthropologists uh, would argue that, uh, that positivism is, is nonsense. Uh, you can't, you know, you, it's, it's silly to continue to pretend that, that we can stand apart from our world and manipulate it, describe it, and build a knowledge base that will have real consequences for, for human beings in solving our problems. Um, because we, we are part of that world, our, uh, even scientific knowledge is subjective um, because it's being, you know, it's it's our interpretation uh, of of how we set up experiments and and how we interpret our data, how we use statistics, and so on. To uh, to say that that our our knowledge is objective and and therefore prescriptive, mm-hmm. um, according to sociologists and anthropologists, is, uh, is uh, nonsense. Um, and uh, so for, for this idea of reframing, um, why don't we take a, a much closer look at what the contributions of sociology, for example, and uh, cultural anthropology, and those take the form of what we call constructivism. Um, now, if we, if we entertain those ideas for a little bit, um, we can see, for example, that this idea of disability, uh, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is a pretty pejorative term. Uh, we used to, to call the folks we serve handicapped, you know, and that was, uh, that was pretty bad, conjured up ideas of people holding their cap out to get change on a street corner. Yeah. Um uh, it's it's uh, although uh, I don't think that's the origins of the term, but right. uh, but that's uh, uh, what people think. Um, so we got rid of that and, and got this term disability, but I, to me, that's not much of an yeah. improvement, you know, It's a word, right? And, uh, uh, it makes it sound like, and again, you can see why it emerged through the dominant paradigm because it has to do again with the individual. The individual right. either has abilities or doesn't. And if they don't, it's because they have a disability, and we have to figure out what that is. the The, the constructivists would say that's that whole thing is a is a construction. Right. You know, there are other constructions uh, we could look at. Um, we can, for example, um, ask you know, when a, when a student is having trouble learning for some reason, what is the contribution of the ecology that student is immersed in mm-hmm. to that problem. Um, a, a piece of social policy in, in the United States that emerged from that perspective, which, which you'll all recognize, is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. It still has that word disabilities in it, but, uh, but if you read the ADA and you look at what it's calling for, it's basically saying we have to rearrange the environment in such a way that it meets the needs of people who have needs for some different kinds of accommodation supports and so on. So we have curb cuts, uh, we have Braille, uh, we have uh, requirements that if public funds are being expended uh, in the service of uh, children and adults, um, that uh, that certain accommodations must be made where they're needed, and, right. and those are done. Uh, it's it's it still cl- clings to the disability uh, label because that's that's the dominant paradigm. Um, but it's really a, a constructivist thrust on on the problem. Um, so now, having said all of that, let's get back to <laughs> inclusion. Right. Um, if if you're You know, if you believe that uh, special education is a specialized uh, application of scientific knowledge to solve problems presented by individuals labeled with disability, um, you're unlikely to be very enthusiastic about the idea of having them in general education classrooms in elementary school or content classrooms in secondary, middle, and high school. Um, you're, you're going to much, be much more comfortable having them in a special place so they can have their special teacher and special curriculum and special this and special that. And, uh, and so um, in the, the, the problem of inclusion, now we have, to, we have to look at this contrast that exists between our, our social values right. as a nation and increasingly as a world um, there's there's this thing called the Salamanca Framework uh, from the 1990s. That was a meeting of 92 nations uh, in Salamanca, Spain, and uh, and and the outgrowth of the report on how we should conduct special education. Um, called for inclusive education that we should not be removing students and, and placing them in separate environments and, uh, and that uh, those Salamanca Accords are, are global values and the United States has a parallel value system that has been you know, m- trying to push this agenda of inclusion the problem is it's trying to push it within a paradigm that doesn't allow it to happen Um, And uh, that's why it brings me back to that idea of a wicked problem. It's a problem that you can't solve because the solutions and the framework that you use to describe the problem. And uh, and so we in the SWIFT Center say, um, let's not concern ourselves any longer with placement based definitions of inclusion. In other words, let's not say that because we're serving children in one place that we should now move them to a different place, that being the general education classroom. Um, in order to do that, then the the, the scientific uh, um, knowledge base would say, well, we need paraprofessionals and, uh, and we need to keep doing the special things but do them in some corner of the classroom so they don't bother the other kids. And, and uh, so on and so forth. None of that has worked. There's, there's no evidence that, that anything has been better for kids with different learning needs in placed in general education classrooms with a paraprofessional velcroed to them in some corner of the class. Um, and yet that, that, the, the values push has been for in, integration and inclusion has been uh, in that direction. So we would say instead of doing that, um, let's uh, um, let's look at let's ask a different question. Let's let's not say should we include kids, and back up and say if we if we take a little bit broader frame on the problem, and say that all kids need something. Uh, in, and uh, in order to, to benefit to the maximum possible extent in the teaching-learning process, uh, then um, the question becomes, what resources do we, have we managed to amass from uh, scientific knowledge and, uh, and remember here, we're also looking toward, again, our old friends from, from sociology and anthropology, not just medicine and psychology. Right. Um, but what have we got available that, that can become an instructional match for an identified need? Um, so if we have a student that's, that's uh, um, not being able to uh, progress with, with the third grade class she's in, in the reading block, um, we, can, we can rely on positivism to get at, you know, what, what are some of the problems that we see in reading, and um, but then rather than, than say, because she has a different kind of learning need, we need to refer her to the special stuff, instead of doing that, we say, what have we got here in the school, including the special stuff from special education, that might be brought to bear to address this measured, identified problem in reading. And uh, and so um, um, this recent emergence of this uh, this new way of thinking about delivery of education called MTSS, you know, really opens up the possibility for us to reframe this whole problem. And instead of diagnosing a a reading problem and prescribing a special remedial uh, approach based on the categorical identification, why don't we uh, um, undertake more intensive instruction using what science is is beginning to give us in terms of uh, breaking down the, the components of reading acquisition and uh, fluency and phonics and so on, and and then find some smaller grouping arrangements that will um, where kids need similar uh, uh, interventions, mm-hmm. and uh, and apply those and uh, and call that tier two interventions. And and maybe for kids that are um, still failing to make progress in the more intensive intervention system of tier two requiring even more perhaps individualized interventions through Tier 3 and so on. Carefully measuring their progress, analyzing the data. Um, So, you know, you notice here I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying let's reject positivism and go whole hard, you know, constructivist. Why don't we be pragmatic? Why don't we use good old American pragmatism and Combine these various epistemologies and reframe the problem so that we don't marginalize and segregate the kids. So, inclusion is no longer a relevant question because, under this system, we're not going to exclude anybody to begin with. Um, You know, the critics might say, well, you know, you're just saying that we need to have all the kids, no matter what their problems and needs are, in the general ed classroom. And I'm saying, no, there's one piece you're leaving out of that, and that is we're not a classroom-based model.
0: Right.
1: We're not, a, we're not about the third grade, we're not about the fourth grade, we're not about the special ed room, we're not about the gifted room, we're not about the Title I room, we're not about the whatever. Um, we are about the whole school. And in some cases, we're about the school and its surrounding community, all of which are, are places where we could educate kids. Um, We're about grouping kids according to complex schedules that meet their their need. And uh, so to get to the solution of the newly framed attack on the problem, um, we would say um, let's uh, let's look at um, an equitable distribution of available resources To any school through its school district or any charter school, let's look at the equitable distribution of resources um, so that they can form an instructional match to meet the needs of any student, no matter what that particular challenge or need is. And that way, all means all. We don't have to to exclude anybody. You know, we we can have kids who spend... Their whole day in a, a tier three intervention system because they have extensive needs for support, um, or we can have kids that, that are in and out of tier two to meet specific uh, needs. And and uh, um, nothing you know, there's no prescriptive categorical. You know, we we still. Uh, will need to, to report information through the categories because they're lodged into federal law. Um, but our dream would be that that f- federal law through future reauthorizations and so on will begin to move toward a much more pragmatic system and, and move us away from this, this, uh, this marginalized, separate problem. So inclusion for us is, is not about... It. Including anything other than resources. Right. Um, so it's, it's what, what, if somebody says, What's your definition of inclusion? we would say it's an equity based definition applicable to all students um, and distributed through a whole school model. So there's a long winded answer. <laughs>
0: <Do you want laughs> That's a great description uh, of the SWIFT mission and how that compares to the way things have been done in the past. To learn more from Dr. Saylor about some of the challenges he has encountered and the hope he has for the future, join us later this month for part two of our podcast with Dr. Wayne Saylor. As always, if you want to know the full story, just go to swiftschools.org and click on Swift Talk, where you can find lots more stories written by leaders in the field of school-wide transformation. These leaders include school administrators, teachers, parents, and others who are promoting all means all. SWIFT is a National K Center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs.